Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Devago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. COVID has killed nearly 609,000 Americans and some 4.1 million worldwide as cases of the Delta variant surge worldwide. Boeing faces more news of production problems with its 787 as the FAA has asked the jet maker to address a problem with switches on all 737 jetliners. Devastating floods have caused widespread destruction in Germany that have left more than 1,000 missing and contributed to something Germans simply aren't used to, power losses. That could have financial implications for the country writ large. Meanwhile, Pakistan has ordered 10 maritime patrol planes from Leonardo, and Poland has opted for M1 Abrams tanks from the United States. And Russia on Tuesday is expected to unveil a new single-engine stealth fighter next week at the MAX air show outside Moscow. Joining us to discuss all this and more on world markets are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy. And for the first time in a long time, we haven't been able to assemble the entire group at the same time, thanks to time zones and folks returning back to normal. So we are taping with Ron first and going to talk to Sash and Richard later in the program. Ron, thanks very much for joining us. As always, Vago, great to be here. An absolute pleasure. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Ron, talk to us a little bit about the group, um, how it uh, performed obviously a, a big second quarter earnings week, uh, as well as some uh, negative news uh, on on Boeing. Uh, you know, as as investors have sort of seesawed between the max problems, uh, you know, new orders, then production, more production problems. Walk us through how the group performed this week. Yeah, the broader market was, um, I'd say, volatile this week. Um, we saw some kind of a you know a, a bit of a of a downdraft in the broader market. That was reflected in uh, the AND group as well. And, and, and I think the issues in the broader market are you know, some concerns about, uh, you know, are we you know, peaking from an economic growth point of view? Uh, China uh, reported their um, growth numbers and they came in behind what folks were looking for. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a summer malaise with some economic growth concerns sprinkled on. And, and look, of course, infl- right, I mean, inflation is also looming large. We heard yeah. uh, Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen both last week say, hey, look, it's running hot, but all of this will cool. We're looking at supply bottlenecks and folks are trying to bring more uh, capacity aboard, right? So inflation is still a concern for uh, yes. folks on the street. For sure. And it's a debate if it is going to cool or not, right? That's, that's probably the, you know, the broader debate. And if it does, when does it? You know, how long does it run hot for? I guess that's the big question. Um, when you look at the A&D group, um, you know, the, the S&P was down about a percent this week. Uh, and um, the A&D group um, broadly was down a little bit more than that. If you look at Lockheed as a nice bellwether of defense, um, it was down about a percent and a half. Um, the, the Boeing company was down uh, about 9%, and we can talk about that. I'm sure we will in a bit. Um, there were some company-specific things going on there. Um, I, I guess you know the, the big loser for the week was um, uh, Virgin Galactic. It was down almost 40% of the week, uh, and we can talk about that a little bit too. Uh, and then we're seeing some strength uh, in uh, the, the business jet names. And, and when we talk about the quarter, we'll, we'll uh, talk about that. But uh, General Dynamics was only down about a half a percent on the week. Bombardier was up, um, you know, text run was down, but after a very, very big run. Um, so there's some expectation building there. And I know that uh, we're going to be looking at earnings in a couple of weeks. What's, what's the market's expectations on those? Yeah, so I, I think a couple, a couple of different things in, in kind of A and D. Um, one, uh, on commercial aero, everybody knows what the OE deliveries are because they announced them, right? So it's no big surprise what, you know, Boeing delivered, Airbus delivered, because we know now. But, but I think the bigger question largely for Boeing will be, you know, you know, 737 deliveries were behind uh, where I think folks were hoping for the quarter. Um, they haven't delivered a 7-8 in, in quite a while, and it looks like they might not do it for another couple months. Um, you know, what impact is that going to have on uh, uh, several things, you know, A, cash flow, B, is the 787 program itself going to be in a forward loss? Kind of hard to imagine it won't be. Uh, maybe they won't announce it this quarter, but it just doesn't seem like it's 
possible that they are that the aircraft won't be in a forward loss at some point here. Um, so I, I, I think folks will be looking at that aftermarket. That's another important thing, uh, you know, where with the air with air traffic picking up, airplanes going back into service. You know, where are we in terms of aftermarket growth? Most certainly, sequentially, we'll have growth almost for sure, right? That's that's a given. But when you start looking on the you know kind of the comparison to 2019, how much will we be down? That kind of thing. Um, so all eyes will be looking at that. And then finally, business jets. I think there's a, a strong expectation and a well-founded expectation that the business jet manufacturers, all of them, um, so, you know, Textron, General Dynamics, Bombardier, Embraer, uh, Dassault, will all talk about a pretty active quarter um, from not just a tire kicking point of view, but actually some good backlog. Um, if, if we don't see some backlog build in the quarter, I would imagine that'll be disappointing. Uh, given the expectations that have built up for for business aviation, and and let's talk a little bit about the administration's policy on China, uh, right? I mean, coming out, uh, warning, raising warning flags uh, about doing business in in Hong Kong. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how the market is interpreting, uh, right? Because there was this sense that some people had is you know Trump was actually strong on China, you know Biden won't be as strong. Whereas people are actually recognizing that the, this administration is actually being tougher because it's actually bringing allies and partners together, both in the uh, Pacific uh, as well as in, in Europe to sort of stand up a little bit more to China and China doesn't like it. What does all of this mean for, for trade and for the group, right? I mean, Boeing is still looking for Beijing to allow the MAX to be recertified in China. Beijing's made some positive notes in that direction, but we still don't have a final word yet. Yeah, there was a I mean, it was an advisory that came out. I think it was Friday morning or maybe Thursday, late Thursday. Um, that was you know joint authored or joint submitted by um, the Department of Commerce, uh, Homeland Security, um, uh, and I forget two others. But it was a, a a joint kind of cross federal government advisory about doing business in in Hong Kong uh, and some of the risks associated with it. And I mean, in, 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 in this, in, in terms of things, reputational risk, financial risk, going on and so forth. And I was surprised the market didn't really react to it. And maybe that's because it's a Friday in July and not many folks were around. But I think if you start peeling back the onion on this, this is clearly maybe some clearly um, escalation and, and maybe even arguably some silent uh, escalation because it just sort of came out. But in that backdrop where, you know, the administration um, really does seem to be, you know, quite hawkish on China. That just would seem to make uh, everything for the 737 um, in terms of the certification of China just more complicated. Like we said in the past, I think Richard has pointed out that it has nothing to do with the safety of the aircraft or anything technical. And I believe that too, that right now, everything with the, the 73 in China, it's hard to believe that it's just not all tied up in the politics. And, and, and then if you overlay the, the C919 certifications supposed to happen, not in the too distant future, that you know, maybe there is a gamesmanship going on here. Maybe they, recert, they certify their aircraft before they certify the 73. Uh, and that could be seen as you know, some sort of you know, um, championship move. Who knows? But um, And I'm not saying that would happen, but you can kind of imagine something like that happening. Um, so, so we'll see, um, you know, this is, you know, this is one case where it, it really does seem like Boeing's a bit of a hostage, uh, in this one. Um, and, and speaking, uh, and, and, uh, right, uh, to your point, I think the consensus both, uh, from all, all three of you on last week's program was that the, the Chinese have built a rather first rate aviation administration, right? So anything that would seem to certify an airplane that's not ready for prime time would would backfire, right? Uh, and and sort of erode uh, the the reputation uh, that they built, and and that will clearly have market uh, implications for them. Um, speaking of Boeing, um, 787 production news uh, negative. Um, we were expecting this shoe to fall. Dominic Gates from the Seattle Times did a terrific story. Uh, um, talking a little bit about that. Uh, there is the switch gear, uh, switch issue on all 737s. Uh, so that's a bit of a challenge. And then you have the fly Dubai 737 max cancellation. Walk us through where we are and where your head is uh, on Boeing, because every single time you think the company, you know, that, that there isn't 
more, there's there's sadly been more. Yeah. So so a couple just maybe working backwards on Fly Dubai. You know, airlines cancel and reorder and things move around. So you, you never want to see a cancellation. I think it was what sixty five seven threes. But it happens, right? I mean, I don't want to belittle it, but, and then other airlines order. So that's, it's sort of, I put that in the box of that's life. That's kind of how things go. Um, on the, the, the switch situation, um, there are airworthiness directives through the life of an airplane. It can affect, you know, different span of the fleet. I mean, this is a big one, um, but it's still kind of normal, honestly, right? I mean, it, it happens right. to everybody and just, you know, it is. The one, the one that and, find- and their altitude and their altitude pressure switches, right? So I mean, yeah. it's not you know it, it's it's important. It could give you a, a, a false or problematic reading, but right, it's it's the cabin depressurization switches uh, is is what I should say. Yeah, and it's you know, and, and I don't want, I don't want to belittle it, but it's you know things come up. I mean, it's uh, throughout the life of every airplane, you get airworthiness airworthiness directors that are kind of in the realm of normal. Um, and then the one I find most disconcerting is yet again. Another fabrication um, flaw, difficulty, hurdle with uh, the the seven eight seven, and you know my limited understanding from what we've seen publicly is you know it has to do with the forward um, pressure bulkhead. Um, and you know to those of you who don't, who don't know what the forward pressure bulkhead is, just think about a soda bottle. It's the cap, right? So if you think about right. you know the you know, the, the, the bottle as a pressure vessel, it's the cap on the bottle. And, you know, it's a worrisome spot because when you punch the bottle, the bottle doesn't break, the cap shoots off, right? right. So to have a, a, you know, a flaw in that cap, that's not a great place to have a flaw. Um, that being said, um, you know, we, we've learned, at least from public statements, that it's not a safety of flight issue now. But I think the broader question is, well, you know, for, for how long and you know, when do you have to switch this piece out? It's in an inconvenient spot <laughs> to, to get at, right? Um, because this isn't a part of the airplane generally that you would you know, change out. Uh, and then and then three, and probably most importantly, how this happened in the first place, right? So it kind of gets back to many conversations we've had on the podcast around you know, what what's going on? Why did this happen? What's what's root cause? You know, what's what's going on in the engineering organization? Or, or the oversight of fabrication, and is this related to um, when when Boeing was trying to move up rate on the aircraft and trying to take cost out? Did they take out some inspections that were costing money and time um, to to take cost out of the process, and and then it kind of took it too far? We'll we'll see. I don't know. I mean, you can speculate all day, but that that's the part that I think is is most worrisome about it. You've said that the street is what's going to propel the company um, to sort of change course uh, on, on, on this. It's not to say that the company is not working hard on these issues, but obviously, depending on the magnitude of your problems, um, you have more work to do. Uh, Tim Keating abruptly left the company. Jeff Shockey, who was the number two lobbyist, if I recall, uh, after Tim's uh, departure from Boeing, has now gone over to Raytheon. Um, you know, it. What, what are you getting from folks at Boeing at this point on this, on sort of the activity and what the company is doing to sort of turn a corner? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same, you know, kind of message, you know, where we're working on it, safety is priority one, so on and so forth. But it's largely, I would classify as kind of corporate boilerplate, right? I mean, kind of what you'd expect them to say. Um, you know, do, do, do you, do, does one get a, an understanding, a deep understanding of what is trying to be changed or attempted to be changed to, to fix the situation? No, no, to be, be quite candid, um, but largely just sort of the, the corporate boilerplate. Um, you know, this upcoming earnings call potentially could be very interesting um, because this will be the first one where, you know, Greg Smith, who was CFO for quite some time, won't be on it. Um, and you have the issues with 7-8 and there's a lot of stuff going on. So I would imagine the Q&A in this upcoming call, it could be interesting, right? Because I, 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 I think, um, you know, the investment community is really starting to not lose patience, but just kind of want to know what's going on. Um, and, 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 and I say that because I've had many conversations with investors who say, you know, the commercial cycle is getting better. Boeing could be an interesting play, but I don't want to wake up with uh, another headline or this or that. So I, I think it's starting to, to wear on the investment community. Anything to say about appropriations? Because I keep asking you this question and your answer is that it's not moving a needle on the street. 
Yeah, seconds. so it's still <laughs> not moving a needle on the street. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I just thought I'd eventually it'll move a needle, right? I mean, it's it's sort of like, you know, uh a broken clock's right twice a day, too, though. Um and and let me ask you one last question, right? Virgin Galactic um had uh, a great week last week, obviously, Sir Richard Branson uh, making it into space. I still think it's an extraordinary achievement. Uh, it's a it's a it's a lovely vehicle. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the next uh, version is is going to be even lovelier. They're looking for the full, again, experience uh, and, and try to do it um, uh, economically. And and I just love the elegance uh, of uh, Bert Rutan's design. We should have given him the shout out last week. Right. I mean, he was the. Uh, driver uh, in 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 this, in terms of his extraordinary uh, design for both the mothership and and for the you know the entire shuttlecock uh, approach, but the stock's down forty percent. So what's 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 driving that? Because wouldn't folks have sort of kept that momentum up through whether or not Jeff Bezos, you know, on Tuesday does his suborbital flight or not? I think I think a couple of factors, Vago. Right? I mean, there's uh, you know one. Um, the stock moved up meaningfully into this event. And there's this old adage on the street um, that I don't love, but sometimes it turns out to be pretty true is, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news, right? So it happened, right? So what's, you know, what what now? That That's one factor too. And I think this is probably the most important factor is right after this, they announced that they were going to do a $500 million capital raise. Um, I right. think that caught many investors off guard. And then three, since this, We've seen a, it's interesting, we've seen a broader debate, particularly in the public press, if you will, maybe outside of just the investment community, is space tourism a realistic thing anyway, right? I mean, if you're, if you're Jeff Bezos, if you're, you know, Sir Richard Branson, um, uh, if, if you're Elon Musk, you know, taking a, a trip to, to space is a doable thing. And so is owning an island in the Caribbean. But, you know, for those of us who don't own islands in the Caribbean or business aircraft, um, is is space tourism actually a, 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 a realistic market and how's it going to play out? And, and you know, I do believe there is a market there, um, but I think there's a broader debate on how big that market could be. Is it an easier thing? Is it not? So, you know, in a way, the success opened kind of the next step of, okay, they did it. Well, now the, you know, how big is the market and will they make money doing it? And now there's maybe some other players doing it. And oh, by the way, and I think this is an important piece, you will have probably in the next 18 to 24 months, if not sooner, um, a whole universe of commercial space companies. Um, there's a, a launch company called Astra that just recently uh, de-spacked. Um, they're now trading. So you have you know, Virgin Galactic, you have Astra, you'll have... Um, uh, was it uh, dark sky, black sky? Um, you're going to have Rocket Lab, um, Spire. Uh, you're going to have um, uh, um, at least three more um, uh, Virgin, you know, the other Virgin sister, you know, Virgin uh, uh, Orbit, um, will be most likely publicly traded companies here. So at one point, you know, Virgin was the Virgin Galactic was the first one to go, but we're going to have a whole universe of these companies in relatively short order with different business models, focusing on everything from tourism to launch to CubeSats, Earth intelligence um, right. of various forms. So I think you, you rolled that all up and I think that took some of the momentum away. And uh, and and before we part, right, uh, you you noted that 7,000 people have made it to uh, Mount Everest, right? I mean, obviously that's a harder slog, but it gives you sort of a, and it's 50,000 bucks, right? Yeah, roughly. ballpark, yeah. Ballpark, right? So then the question becomes: Okay, who wants to pay two hundred fifty thousand to spend two and a half minutes in weightlessness? Yeah, or or more, right? You know, I think there's one case floating around out there that for the business model to actually work, it'll have to be more than that, maybe closer to four hundred thousand, and um, which whatever, it's fine. But you know, how how big is that market anyway? Um, I I I still think there are people who will mortgage their house to do it. I still disagree with that either. Right. I mean, so, right. I'm a, I'm a space nun. I, I remember the moon landing, you know, I bought an Omega Speedmaster to try to have my brush with space greatness. Right. Um, you know, and I think, I think that there are other folks who might fall into that category. 
Ron, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on and hopefully we can all get everybody together again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, looking forward to the Bogger. Uh, as Richard says, it's just not a complete weekend without it. <laughs> exactly. Thanks again. Bon voyage. And joining us now are Sash and Richard. Unfortunately, all of us couldn't be together, but thanks very much for making time for us, guys. Thanks very much indeed, Vargo. It's, it's, it's still a pleasure, despite the fact we're missing Ron. Yes, even disaggregated, it's great to be here. And uh, Richard, absolutely uh, stunning uh, to see you guys uh, in uh, Gotland. Uh, so, okay, come on, quick, give the 30-second uh, tourism pitch. Pretty much anybody who goes to Scandinavia has to go to Gotland, don't they? Yeah, especially if you're a fan of, uh, you know, great Cold War standoffs in the Baltic Ocean, which, of course, uh, <laughs> happened uh, more often than anyone wants to talk about way back when. But it's just a lovely island. It uh, seems to have a climate that's strange, uh, strangely Mediterranean here in the middle of the Baltic. And uh, the people are fantastic. And there's uh, lots of uh, terrific local craftsmanship and uh, artisan production of food and drink. Uh, absolutely terrific. Sweden's floating aircraft carrier right there in the middle uh, of the of the Baltic and, and sadly, once again, uh, becoming remilitarized, obviously. Um, Sash, start us off. Um, Ron gave us sort of the broader market uh, overview. We talked about 737, uh, Fly Dubai, it's the 787 issue. T- take us in any direction you want, including uh, the lifting of uh, you know, what, what the outlook is for air travel, right? UK moving forward next week, hopefully reopening uh, in full, although there are some concerns about that. Walk us through all of those stories and what's your sense on them. And then Richard, want to get your take as well. Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, j- just as, you know, at the macro, there was a continuation of the trend of uh, the week before last, which was, you know, China recovering from its dip in June, uh, US and European short haul continuing to recover. But probably slowing down. I mean, trending now towards about the levels that uh, that they were at uh, close to 2019, particularly because we're pretty much at capacity now in the US and probably actually also in China. Um, Europe, you know, less. Uh, and there are, you know, what do you call it, pockets of weakness in Australia and uh, uh, South Africa, which are the sort of the glitches. And we keep on getting glitches. I wouldn't get too carried away about the UK opening up, I've got to say. Uh, it's opening up internally, which, given that we've got 50,000 new coronavirus cases every day, does not seem to me personally to be a terribly wise thing. But travel outside the UK is still incredibly difficult. More countries have, have been downgraded in terms of uh, travel restrictions this week from the UK than have been upgraded. Uh, and, you know, there's a fair number of summer holidays that are being ruined, particularly to France, uh, where now if you come back from France, you're going to have to quarantine for 10 days plus loads of PCR tests and so forth. So it's not going to be a ruined summer for uh, European vacationers, but it's not going to be a good one. And the airlines are squealing uh, at the moment. I think we're going to get a whole round of recapitalizations going on in the uh, in the winter months, because uh, you know the state, the state-owned or the state-controlled carriers will need to get some more cash, and the low costs will probably be okay. Uh, but I think then the marginal carriers, you know, some of them are going to go to the wall this this winter. Richard, your sense on the travel outlook? Because I mean, for an American who's interested in getting over to to the UK for uh, the DSCI show, there are still right. I mean, there aren't exemptions, as best as I can tell. Uh, waivers haven't been granted. So we, you know, people who want to come over either has to get a chip from the government or you've got to do the quarantining routine. Uh, Richard, you guys, you know, found your vacation impacted by this. Walk us through where you think we are and where we're going. Yeah, I mean, it's just going to be something of a, uh, I wouldn't say disappointing summer. <laughs> it's just going to be a very choppy one. I think everyone had this sort of in- the feeling that there would be a big bang of everything covering coming back and be able to take that vacation to Italy or something you'd put off. And it's just gotten a lot more complicated. I still believe yet again that we are back to the 2019 travel peak by late 2022. It's just that it's going to be choppy. It's going to continue to be weird. And uh, as an American in Europe right now, I can tell you that uh, if you can deal with the uncertainties, boy, it's fantastic. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of capacity. There aren't log lines. And uh, in general, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a paradise. Um, but we're going to get back there. Sash, talk to us a little bit about Boeing. 
the 737 issue, the Fly Dubai issue, and, and 787. You guys heard what Ron had to say. Want to get your sense on both of those storylines, on all of those storylines. Yeah, I'm like, I've, on the Fly Dubai cancellation, first of all, um, I, you know, respectfully, I, it's, it's one of those rare occasions where I probably um, I disagree with Ron on this. Cancellations, until recently were incredibly uncommon and cancellations coming straight out of the blue uh like that are very unusual indeed um and it does you know it does suggest that uh fly dubai have you know lost patience with the max but actually i suspect that they had just overordered by a lot and they're taking the opportunity to reduce that so the you know the question is going to be how much more of this is there to come and then what happens to Airbus? Because historically, airlines didn't cancel. What they did is they rolled over to, you know, into another decade if necessary, or they converted it, uh, you know, their, their order into an aircraft they really wanted. But cancellation, you know, you had to be like Iraqi airlines after, you know, in the mid 1990s, where you didn't actually exist, but Airbus still had you in your uh, in, in, in their uh, order backlog for legal reasons. Now, it seems to me airlines are much more trigger happy. Um, and, uh, you know, Boeing has given them with both the 737 MAX and now the 787, you know, heaven sent opportunities to, to cancel. And, the, you know, the, the worrying thing is they're taking that. And that, you know, that's that's not good for Boeing's overall backlog. And, you know, recall that, you know, the uh, 737 MAX backlog is now, um, uh, you know, Boeing's got under 40% of the narrow body uh, market in terms of forward backlog. Airbus has got over 60%. That's the sort of situation that in previous times would have been seen as being deeply unstable, you know, unsettling, un unstable, and a real problem in terms of pricing. Because Airbus has just got huge leverage with its suppliers. Boeing has an Airbus can price down when they want to, or, or they can just you know, keep on taking the profits because they've got the aircraft that people want. As far as the 787 is concerned, it really worries me that, that uh, you know, we keep on getting these stories coming out because it suggests that Boeing systematically took, they didn't just take cost out of the 787, they took manufacturing safety out as well. And that's a horrible, horrible culture to have to turn around. Richard? Um, yes and no. <laughs> uh, in terms of the second boy, yeah, strong, strong agreement with Sash. You know, boy, there's so much at Boeing that needs to be rethought. And of course, Ron touched upon this too. The whole engineering and safety and technical culture. Please give us something. They must recognize that this is a broader cultural concern and must indicate a willingness to put resources into rectifying these serious problems before they get even worse still. I mean, my God. In terms of the first thing uh, that uh, Sash discussed, the whole, well, cancellation issue, I'm not sure I agree. I, I remember in the 2010s, there were simply some Bad out of hell, crazy orders. We all saw them, you know. I mean, uh, Lion Air, AirAsia, um, yeah, Fly Dubai, Vietjet, whoever else. And a lot of them, you know, were accompanied by these sort of, well, if we don't need the jets, maybe we'll become a lessor. Probably the single most ridiculous battle cry of the great order games of the 2010s. There was bound to be fallout. It's not just the market fallout. It's not just the changing contractual terms associated with the max delays. It's just that a lot of these orders were badly thought out ideas. I mean, and Fly Dubai, you know, like all of the others, when, how could you ever look back in history in terms of the fleet for the region and say, oh, yes, the requirement for all these jets is warranted. I mean, come on, the three great super connector uh, Gulf carriers, Qatar, Etihad, and, and Emirates, all are distinguished by having, I believe, let me see if I can count, uh, zero single aisles. So the idea is that all of a sudden there'd be this adjunct organization set up to provide some sort of big regional feeder system for traffic that really doesn't exist, replacing a fleet that doesn't really exist. This was bound to end poorly. <laughs> so I'm not so sure I'd read too much into these cancellations. Um, I want to get into a more needle-moving story, which is the EU uh, uh, incoming carbon policy that's going to have implications for uh, industrial sectors 
particularly aviation. And then we've got the German flooding, which has been a, just a, an awful uh, loss of life, but something that could also have a budgetary and indeed may have an electoral impact uh, as well. But first, want to give you guys a chance to take a bite at the, at the China apple. We've been talking about this for some time, whether or not there's going to be a conflation between the worsening relations between uh, the United States and Beijing and what happens to the 737 Boeing's prospects and what is 30% of the company's order book going uh, going over there. Sash, you want to take a bite at, at, at China and, and Richard before we sort of move on and whether or not you guys think the admonishment or the warning from the U.S. government and whether or not that really changes anything or just plays into the sort of evolving sentiment? Uh, yeah, look, I'll, I'll start. Um, I think that this is more this is more of the same. But what is the same? The same is that civil aerospace is a deeply political uh, industry and environment. The idea that this is just the private sector and that airlines and uh, OEMs make sort of rational decisions based on who wants to buy what and who's going to make the most profit, baloney. Politicians, politics, nationalism gets involved the whole damn time. I loved uh, Ron's thesis that actually the Chinese are going to, de- or you could, may delay the max recertification until the C919 has been recertified. C919, or certified rather, C919 should be certified for the Zhuhai Air Show end of uh, September, beginning of October. So if that's the case, Boeing won't be delivering maxes back to China until, you know, well into, well into Q4. If then, but it seemed to me that that, that that as a thesis absolutely captured the political nature uh, or one of the political natures of this industry. Uh, and, you know, the, the, politi- the politics is worsened when you have the sort of competition and the uh, stress that you have between the US and China anyway. So the um, actions of the Biden administri- administration this week over Hong Kong just don't help Boeing's cause. Richard? You know, I mostly agree with Sash. I'm going to stake out a slightly controversial thesis here, which is that the Chinese government is not holding the strong hand that it thinks it holds. Uh, you know, it, of course, it's political, just as Sash says. But let's ask, what are they trying to achieve here? Well, let's assume it is to achieve a level of industrial policy, sort of a mercantilism and autarkic approach to civil aerospace, maybe even heading in the direction of what the old Soviet Union achieved in all of its glory. Okay, I'm here to tell them, and I suspect they know, and they're just stalling, that the C919 is just not ready for prime time, even with copious quantities of Western equipment, which may or may not be legal to ship over for the production articles. Uh, If it is legal, if we clarify the military end user list for all of the many components essential for this jet, maybe they'll start to ramp up production later in the decade. If not, back to the drawing board, CN 2040. Um, Either way, no, they cannot meet their own needs. They just can't. And I think they're stalling uh, because eventually you'll see a resumption of air travel growth in China. You'll see a resumption in orders. It's been a bit of a hiatus. Um, And Airbus will probably gain market share until the point where Europe somehow annoys the PRC, at which point they'll try to say, oh, well, yes, and now we're certifying the MAX. In other words, they're, well, again, just not holding the strong hand they think that they're holding. Well, I I think we can say that across the piece on the Chinese, right? I mean, I think you could look at their confidence, their degree of arrogance may, may not be, be matched by the reality of their uh, situation. I also think they're more fragile and brittle, which consequently also makes them somewhat more, more dangerous in the, in, the, in the immediate sense. Sash, do you have any sort of follow-up to that before we go to the EU policy change? Uh, and I understand that that's a commercial story, and then the German story may be a defense story, but just sort of get your sense on these major uh, storylines for the for the week, and, and Richard, your sense as well. Yeah, I mean, I just want to clarify, really, this is a question for uh, you and Richard. Are U.S. companies now banned from selling uh, you know, from delivering civil aerospace components to China? Because if they are, then, you know, the 919 program comes to a screeching halt. But um, if they're not, and it, you know, it's got to be a pretty formal ban, and those things, governments tend to think quite hard about that because, 
it has an implication for you as a supplier um, or, you know, the reliability of you. But, you know, if it's not a formal ban, if it's just you shouldn't be supplying to Chinese military organizations, actually the Chinese get around that predominantly by having joint ventures, you know, with the likes of uh, GE and Honeywell and Safran and, you know, Megit and so forth, which are producing, um, producing products in country, but using typically technology that was, in my view, rather misguidedly uh, put into the joint venture by the Western uh, partner in the first place. Richard? Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, Sash, of course, is quite correct about the JVs and the technology transfer associated with it, but not with the engines. The CFM engine, that is to say the Leap-1C, um, that's not a JV. That is engines that need to be shipped. Yeah. And the thing is that no one can quite figure it out. Uh, I mean, maybe there's a selective ambiguity in the military end user list because basically all the constituent components of COMAC are on the remote list, but COMAC itself isn't. And this to me looks like sort of a negotiating approach that the administration has put forth. Uh, you know, I, I well, I'll, if you'll forgive me for this, but uh, I, I actually testified before a, a Senate committee this week, remote from Stockholm. And uh, the one thing that, about the issue of supply chain and, 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 and commercial aerospace and what companies were concerned about given the market environment. And uh, the one question I got from people who said, will you ask this is, what the hell is this MEU list? And will you please clarify it for us? Right. Uh, and, and I think there, there might be a certain, well, uh, intention that might be exactly the purpose that you know the, the lack of clarity might just be the point sash take us away on what you think the eu story means and how you think uh this um tragedy in germany could actually have defense implications or ramifications yeah sure okay so uh the european union has come out with a new transport and industrial uh policy this week that particularly looks at the issue of carbon emissions. No great surprise there. But from our point of view, from the point of view of our uh, listeners, the bit that really matters is that the EU is now, I mean, the EU wants to become a, you know, a low carbon uh, leader, but the way that they want to do the decarbonisation includes removing the tax breaks on aviation fuel. Aviation fuel is currently tax-free for countries all around the world. Um, it's, it's a genuinely level playing field, which is quite unusual. Um, and the EU is now saying so much carbon is being emitted by uh, aviation that we, the EU, are going to start uh, taxing it. Now, initially, they'll do that for uh, European, I was going to say domestic. I mean, clearly, even in Europe, uh, a domestic carrier is by, almost by definition flying internationally, but they'll, they'll do that for, for short haul. Um, there are clearly very, very big issues associated with putting a carbon tax on fuel for US carriers and, and vice versa. But this is the, um, the start of a very, very interesting uh, situation. And I'm not, I'd suggest two things. Number one, governments at the moment have the impression, whether correct or not, I think probably not personally, that um, what the last six months has shown is that you can get an economic recovery without having a huge amount of aviation, certainly in Europe. You know, the, the recovery has been very, very impressive. UK, ditto. Uh, the av aviation has, has lagged behind it. So the argument that aviation is needed as a, a growth generator doesn't have a great deal of political traction. Um, the second issue uh, that I think is interesting is that this will, you know, the EU's uh, carbon tax will really test the price elasticity of demand for uh, aviation, particularly um uh, leisure aviation, but probably even business. You know, typically, um, uh, leisure aviation is highly price sensitive. You cut prices by, uh, you know, five percent, and you get seven percent extra growth, something like that, eight percent even. Um, business is about one for one. Um, so, if ticket prices are going to rise, i.e., there's no change in the equipment fleet or, or routes flown, then that will actually choke off aviation growth quite significantly. And I suspect this will make um, quite a strong argument for a re-equipment cycle to get newer fuel-efficient aircraft in. But I think that it's going to be very, very difficult. And I think that the aviation industry in Europe is feeling slightly under attack at the moment, and they're right to do so because they're not seen as being you know, on the right side of the whole uh, carbon debate uh, over here. And that's an uncomfortable position to be in. 
Still on the subject of climate, Germany's climate has been dreadful. I mean, Germany and um, uh, that bit of Western Europe. We, we in the UK had some rain on Monday, which was horrendous. We had nothing like what's happened in Germany. There are, at the time that we are um, going to microphone, uh, 1,300 people still missing. Um, and uh, the devastation caused to towns and villages and, and the infrastructure is appalling in Western Germany. Absolutely shocking. The implications for this from the point of view of our sector actually is in defence. It makes a, um, a government, you know, Germany's got elections in October. It makes a green-led, or at least a green-dominated government, much more likely than even you know a couple of weeks ago. Um, the current betting is talking about what's called a green-black coalition, Greens plus the uh, Christian Democrats. Christian Democrats are normally pretty good on defence. The Greens definitely are not. And right. I think there will be a lot of tension in any green-dominated uh, government. And there hasn't been a Green-dominated government ever in Germany. The Greens have had a position in government, but generally as part of a two- or three-way or four-way coalition. This might well be a two-way coalition, and if that's the case, they'll have a veto. Um, what would I worry about most? Nuclear. Uh, the nuclear bomber requirement, the, re the replacement of the tornadoes by supposedly 45 F-18s. If the Greens are in, forget it. That just, you know, Germany will say, we'll do everything else for NATO, but we don't really need to uh, carry big buckets of instant sunshine. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and I think that that will cause, it'll cause NATO some uh, some soul searching, but I think it will impose quite a strain on the German-US alliance, which on the basis of Angela Merkel's uh, current visit to uh, Washington is, you know, actually pretty good otherwise. Um, and I should uh, point out, right, it's Armin Laschet, who's on at the CDU, the CDU candidate, and uh, expected by many to be the successor uh, to Angela Merkel. And the German Green Party uh, is headed by Annalena Baerbock, uh, who, um, you know, depending on which polls you look at, right, it's kind of gone back and forth over the course of uh, over, over of the past several months. Richard, your, your sense on both these storylines? I, you know, I think Sash is dead on in both, really. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the prospect of uh, the Greens being uh, a major partner in the German coalition, yeah, that would seem to put bay to that nuclear requirement. Um, instant sunshine, as he says. <laughs> yeah, that was that's a that's an instant classic, uh, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Strangelove, I believe. That, that was a, that was a Dr. Yeah, well, that's been the technical description, certainly in, in um, UK air circles of, yeah, uh, yeah. of these for a very, very long time. Hey, to the guys on the B61 program, that's what you should be thinking. Instant sunshine. <laughs> you were saying, Richard. <laughs> but, you know, on a uh, equally apocalyptic note, I, you know, the, the tragedy in Germany now, along with, uh, you know, bigger headlines for relatively apocalyptic weather, whether it's the West Coast of the U.S. and it's sudden spurt of heat domes, which I had never heard of before, and or the fact that Siberia seems to be blowing up in flames of all things. Here in uh, Sweden, things are, it's a record, multi-century hot, dry record. Everything seems sort of apocalyptic, which is bad enough, but, you know, if you believe the climate scientists, then things might even get worse still. And at what point do we reach a tipping point? And does that green agenda really get uh, even more traction? And the carbon taxes that Sash speaks of, well, they could just get much, much, much worse. The sad truth is that short of rationing air travel, the only mechanism that societies have to keep a lid on carbon emissions is just tax the living hell out of anybody who does any kind of activity that involves carbon, like air travel. And yeah, you could easily see that tipping point become a tipping point where it begins to, well, impact, you know, on the basis of elasticity, air travel growth. And I had never thought about this before, but current events are certainly making me uh, change my tune here. Um, I, I think you've uh, both heard uh, me use this uh, analogy in the past, right? I mean, it, er, the earth is at, at this point like a, 70-year-old four-pack-a-day smoker who can still who's still active and fit, not recognizing that he's got one uh, foot on the banana peel. And I think that what people fail to understand is, right, once the glaciers melt, there's no arresting that, right? I mean, so now we're in a period where whatever is going to happen is going to happen. The question is whether we slow it down a little bit, but it's still, you know what I mean? The, the we haven't even begun to see the scope of that light, right? We have a light at the end of the tunnel, 
it's just we're not quite sure how big the locomotive is. And I think it's becoming increasingly clear in my tortured metaphor here um, how, how, how unfortunate uh, the, the repercussions could be. Sash, uh, very interesting week for military news, seeing as how we're, we're on the topic of Armageddon. By the way, I should point out to people uh, that, uh, and, and Richard, when you're in Stockholm, go to the Army Museum. It's, it's absolutely uh, terrific. And look for the heavy water container, uh, right? I think we have a, a tendency of forgetting that Sweden was working the instant sunshine uh, as well there for a while uh, during the Cold War. Sash, Leonardo sold 10 maritime patrol aircraft based on the Embraer ERJ uh, E-Jet series. Warsaw picked the M1 as its uh, next tank. Uh, and obviously, Russia is unveiling its new single-engine stealth fighter next week at Max Airshow. Uh, walk us through your sense on all of these stories and Richard as well. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Leonardo, first of all, um, uh, you know, they, they, they've done some integration of maritime patrol, maritime uh, surveillance uh, systems and sensors generally into ATR turboprops. Uh, it, it's a tough job to do. It's, you know, it's, this is very, very difficult to get right. Um, and now you've got this announcement of, a, of really a much bigger program, 10 aircraft for Pakistan, three of which apparently are already in build. Um, and, um, you know, amusingly, both Leonardo and, uh, and uh, the, the customer are being quite coy about this. But this is potentially a very interesting move because what it would do would be to come in below the Boeing P-8 um, because the, the ERJ is just a, 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 the E-Jet is a, a much smaller airplane and they'll probably be much less sophisticated in terms of weapons bays and so forth. But it just shows that there needs to be some competition uh, below the P-8. Uh, the P8 for countries that either can't afford it or don't need the you know the, the full up capability, uh, and it may be if Leonardo gets the integration right. That's an if, but you know it's a highly skilled uh, company. But if they get the integration right, they might uh, create their own subset subsector of the market. And you know, good luck to them on that. Um, Poland uh, buying a you know couple of hundred uh, M1 tanks, absolutely astonishing. Uh, Poland's been a, a leopard buyer. There are very few. Actually, I can't think of a case where a leopard uh, two customer then went and bought M1s. Leopard ones, yes. Australia leopard twos, no. Never been done before. Um, and partly this is because Poland is very very keen to you know maintain the U.S. relationship. But partly also, I suspect that the Germans and to some extent the French just upset the Poles too much on the uh, main ground combat system. The future uh, Leopard Leopard 2 replacement, we, we tend to refer to it as Leopard 3. The Poles wanted in on that. I think that the, uh, the Germans and the French were probably a bit too standoffish and more fool them because you let the M1 in uh, to Europe, even at this late stage, and that tarnishes your own products and, and your own commercial prospects. That's a really dumb thing to do. Um, finally, Russian single-engine fighter. Yeah, Russians haven't ha actually had a, a, a new fighter, I think, in the last uh, two decades. They've re, you know, rehashed and upgraded the Sukhoi 27 family and the MiG-29 family, both of which, you know, the, the nomenclature is somewhere in the, in the mid-30s now. Um, and, the, and as a consequence, the Russians really haven't competed in, um, in most of the, the fighter competitions that we've looked at. A new single-engine fighter would be a really, really interesting uh, product to, to throw into the you know the next five ten years of, of competitions. Richard, your your sense on those uh, aviation stories before we wrap up for the week? Sure, let's uh, start backwards. You know, I agree completely. You know, it's been a very long time uh, before since Russia has sort of leveraged its strength with um, sort of less flush with cash fighter markets with a single engine fighter. And back in the MiG-21 days, of course, they did tremendous business that. Um, the original MiG-35, starting about uh, 25, 30 years ago, was going to be that. And MiG-35 just became, of course, um, another version of the MiG-29 SM-2 cousin. Um, and since then, they, other than a few SM-2 sales to India and Egypt, really, most of their fighter sales have been, you know, Su-30, Su-35s which are high-end jets. You know, you might get Uganda to buy a few or Angola or Venezuela. That's, those are all customers. But then they find themselves with 12, 12 planes they can't afford to fly. <clears throat> you know, the, the maintenance and fuel costs are simply overwhelming because they're twin-engine heavyweights. So I agree completely. If they can actually find the cash and capability to design an integrated single-engine fighter that's in the F-16 class, that's uh, potentially um, a, a, a solid product. 
However, on the other hand, it's been many decades. I'm not so sure they're going to be able to do that, especially since their own military, when it's been asked to force to decide, it goes with a twin engine heavyweight. So who pays for its development and who provides that home market endorsement? Uh, you know, the other question, the MPAs for Pakistan, you know, Turkey had its own turboprop MPA. I think it involved Leonardo. Italy did. I think they involved Leonardo too. It's not just that it's a small piece of real estate in terms of the aircraft you're working on when it comes to integration and, uh, you know, fitting out with the various componentry and weaponry and equipment. It's also that, frankly, it's a, it's a, tiny and rather bespoke market there's just not a lot going on you know the if you try to sell a p8 or back in the day in atlantique you actually have more customers willing to make that purchase if it's a cheap turboprop strangely there's just not that much of a market so this looks like a pakistan thing i wouldn't bank on a whole lot more than that uh, still, an interesting development. We'll see where it goes. And it's important uh, to remember, by the way, sorry if I just make oh, the please. Brazilians have a similar lineage-powered right. MPA in the works as well. Um, I should also uh, point out that Russia has been working the twin-engine version of its stealth fighter for some time, uh, and it's been in development forever, and it is just in the initial uh, stages of fielding, right? So, I mean, so the gestation period for this, certainly from a Russian uh, perspective, seems to be somewhat more prolonged than not. Uh, guys, thanks very much for joining us. Sash, uh, a shout out to Sir Lewis Hamilton, who uh, won uh, Silverstone for the eighth time with what can only be characterized as a truly epic uh, drive. Uh, so um, for anybody who, who missed the uh, Formula One race, they should do that. Uh, stunning victory for Mercedes and, and for Sir Lewis. Uh, and our hearts and thoughts go out to uh, Germany uh, and and to Germans uh, during this extraordinary period. And we certainly wish uh, the very best. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And I hope we can all convene together next week. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. Thanks very much indeed, Vago. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks for doing this. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.